Part 1. Seven Threats to Thinking About Ethics This part does not look up a threat to ethical behavior arising from the sins and weaknesses that make us behave badly. I only visit these depressing sources of some of the ills of the world at the end of the book. This part looks instead at the ideas that destabilize us when we think about standards of choice and conduct. In various ways, these ideas seem to suggest that ethical thought is somehow impossible. They are important because they themselves can seep into the moral environment. When they do, they can change what we expect from each other and ourselves, usually for the worse. After that happens, when we look at the bigger words, justice, equality, freedoms, and rights, we are likely to see only bids for powers and clashes of power. Or we see only hypocrisy. Or we see only our own opinions, unworthy to be foisted onto the others. Skepticism, cynicism, and self-consciousness threatens to paralyze us. In this part, we look at seven such threats. 1. The threat of the death of God. For many people, ethics is not only tied up with religion, but is completely settled by it. Such people do not need to think too much about ethics because there is an authoritative code of instructions, a handbook of how to live. It is the word of heaven or the will of a being greater than ourselves. The standards of a living become known to us by revelation of this being. Either we take ourselves to perceive the fountainhead directly, or more often, we have the benefit of an intermediary, a priest or a prophet, a text or a tradition sufficiently in touch with the divine will to be able to communicate it to us. Then we know what to do. Obedience to the divine will is meritorious and brings reward. Disobedience is lethally punished. In the Christian version, obedience brings triumph over death or everlasting life. Disobedience means internal hell. In the 19th century in the West, when traditional religious beliefs began to lose its grasp, many thinkers felt that ethics went with it. It is not to the purpose here to assess whether such belief should have lost its grip. Our question is the implications for our standards of behavior. Is it the true that, as Dostoevsky said, if God is dead, everything is permitted? It might seem to be true. Without a lawgiver, how can there be a law? Before thinking about this step more directly, we might take a diversion through some of the shortcomings in traditional religious instructions. Anyone reading the Bible might be troubled by some of its precepts. The Old Testament God is partial to some people above others, and above all, jealous of his own preeminence, a strange moral obsession. He seems to have no problem with the slave-owning society. Exodus 21.7 explains how slavery of daughters should be conducted. Believes that birth control is a capital crime. Genesis 38, 9-10. Is keen on child abuse. Proverbs 22, 15, 13, 23, 14, 26-3. And for good measure, approves as fool abuse. Prov 29, 15. Things are usually supposed to get better in the New Testament, with its admirable emphasis on love, forgiveness, and meekness. Yet the overall story of atonement and redemption is morally dubious, suggesting as it does that justice can be satisfied by the sacrifice of an innocent for the sins of the guilty, the doctrine of the scapegoat. Then the persona of Jesus in the Gospels has his fair share of moral quirks. He can be sectarian, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into the city of the Cemeterians, and Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, 5-6. In a similar vein, he dismisses the non-Jewish woman from Canaan, who had asked for help with the chilling racist remark. It is not neat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Matthew 15.26 He wants us to be gentle, meek, and mild, but he himself is far from it. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Matthew 23.33 the episode of Gardarian Swine shows him to share the then popular belief that mental illness is caused by possession by devils. 
This also shows that animal lives, also anybody's property right in pigs, have no value. Matthew seventeen fifteen through twenty one, Luke eight twenty eight through thirty three. The events of the fig tree in Bethany, Matthew eleven twelve to twenty one, would make any environmentalist hair stand on end. Finally, there are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. So we might wonder as well why he is not shown explicitly countermanding some of the rough bits of the Old Testament, Exodus twenty two eighteen, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to help, help to burn alive tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women in Europe and America, bringing between around 1450 and 1780. It would have been helpful to suffering humanity, one might think, had a supremely good and caring, knowledgeable God, foreseeing this, revoke the injunction. All in all, then the Bible can be read as giving us a carte blanche for harsh attitudes to children, the mentally handicapped, animals, the environment, the divorced, unbelievers, people with various sexual habits, and elderly women. It encourages harsh attitudes to ourselves as fallen creatures, endlessly polluted by sin and hatred of ourselves, inevitably bring hatred of others. Obviously, there have been and will be apologists who want to defend or explain away the embarrassing elements. Similarly, apologists for Hinduism defend or explain away its involvement with the caste system, and apologists for Islam defend or explain away its harsh penal codes, its attitudes to women, and its alarming tendency to put to death people of other faiths or no faiths at all, and especially people who lose their faith in Islam. What is interesting, however, is that when we weigh up these attempts, we are ourselves in the process of assessing moral standards. We are able to stand far enough back from any text or tradition, however entrenched, to ask whether it represents an admirable or acceptable morality, or whether we ought to accept some bits but reject others. The classic challenge to the idea that ethics either needs or can be given a religious foundation is provided in Plato in the dialogue known as the Euthyphro. In this dialogue, Socrates, who is on the point of being tried for impiety, encounters one Euthyphro, who sets himself up as knowing exactly what piety or justice is. Indeed, he is so sure of this that he is on the point of prosecuting his own father for causing a death. Socrates challenges him by asking, The point which I should first wish to understand is whether the pious, pious or holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy, or holy because it is beloved of the gods. Once he has posed his question, Socrates has no trouble coming down on one side of it. I mean to say that the holy has been acknowledged by us to be loved by God, because it is holy, not to be holy because it is loved. The point is that God, or the gods, are not to be thought of as arbitrary. They have to be regarded, regarded as selected the right things to allow and to forbid. They have to latch on to what is holy or just, exactly as we do. It is not given that they do this simply because they are powerful, or created everything, or have horrendous punishments and delicious rewards in their gifts. That doesn't make them good. Furthermore, to obey their commandments just because of their power would be servile and self-interested. Suppose, for instance, I am minded to do something bad, such as to betray someone's trust. It isn't good if I think, well, let me see, the gains are such and such, but now I have to factor in the chance of God hitting me hard if I do. On the other hand, God is forgiving, and there is a good chance I can fob him off by a confession or by a deathbed repentance later. These are not the thoughts of a good character. The good character is supposed to think, it would be a betrayal, so I won't do it. That's the end of the story. To go in for a religious cost-benefit analysis is, in a phrase made famous by the contemporary moral philosopher Bernard William, to have one thought too many. The detour through an external god, then, seems worse than irrelevant. It seems to distort the idea of a standard of conduct. As the moral philosopher Immanuel Kant put it, 
They encourage us as to act in accordance with the rule, but only because of fear of punishment or some other incentive. Whereas what we really want is for people to act out of respect for a rule. That is what true virtue requires. I discuss these ideas of Kant more fully in part two. We might wonder whether any vulgarized religion is a target for this kind of critique. The question then becomes, what other kind is there? A more adequate conception of God should certainly stop him from being a vindictive old man in the sky. Something more abstract, perhaps. But in that mystical direction lies a God who stands a long way away from human beings, and also from human good or bad. As the Greek Epicurus put it, the blessed and immortal nature knows no trouble itself nor causes trouble to any other, so that it that it is never constrained by anger or favor, for all such things exist only in the weak. A real blessed and immortal nature is simply too grand to be bothered by the doings of tiny human beings. It would be unfitting for it to be worked up over whether human beings are eating shellfish or having sex one way or another. The alternative suggested by Plato's dialogue is that religion gives a mythical clothing and mythical authority to a morality that is just there to begin with. Myth, in this sense, is not to be despised. It gives us symbolism and examples that engage our imaginations. It is the depository for humanity's endless attempts to struggle with death, desire, happiness, and good and evil. When an exile reminisces, she will remember the songs and poems and folk tales of the homeland rather than its laws or constitutions. If the song no longer speaks to her, she is on the way to forgetting. Similarly, we may fear that when religion no longer speaks to us, we may be on our way to forgetting some important parts of history and human experience. This may be a moral change, for better or worse. In this anal analysis, religion is not the foundation of ethics, but its showcase or its symbolic expression. It provides the music and the poetry with which ethics is displayed. But it is more than that, for we drape our own standards with the st stories of divine origin as a way of cementing their authority. We do not just have a standard of conduct that forbids, say, murder, but we have mythical historical examples in which God expresses his displeasure at cases of murder. Unhappily, myth and religion stand at the service of bad morals as well. We read back what we put in, magnified and validated. We do not just fear science or want to take other people's land, but we have examples in which God punishes the desire for knowledge or commands us to occupy the territory. We have God's authority for dominating women or children or nature or regarding them, others different from ourselves, as inferior or even criminal. In other words, we have the full depressing spectacle of people not only wanting to do something, but projecting upon their gods the commands making it right or even a duty to do it. The prisons containing convicted terrorists are filled with deluded young men convinced that their holy book has told them that almost everyone else must be killed. Religion on this account is not the source of standards of behavior, but a projection of them, made precisely in order to dress them up with an absolute authority. Religion serves to keep us apart from them, and no doubt it has other social and psychological functions as well. It can certainly be the means whereby unjust political authority keep its subjects docile. The words of the hymn, God made the rich man in his castle and the poor man at its gate, helped to keep the lower orders resigned to their fate. It's good for the bosses, but it is also some good for the underdogs, for it can be, as Marx famously put it, the opium of the people, giving them a narcotic consolation for existence in a harsh social world. Finally, as the sociologist Emil Durkheim emphasized, the very arbitrariness of religious practices, the rules determining what is sacred and what is not, what to eat and how to dress, how rituals are to be performed, and so on, serve further to separate us from them, 
Just as Monty Python's Knights of Nye cemented their brotherhood by affirming that they are the knights who say nothing. If all this is right, then the death of God is far from being a threat to ethics. It is necessary clearing of the ground on the way to revealing ethics for what it really is. Perhaps there cannot be laws without a lawgiver, but Plato tells us that ethical laws cannot be the arbitrary whims of personalized gods. Rather, instead, we can make our own laws. We know that this is sometimes true. There is no biblical or coronaic authority for a 30 mile per hour speed limit, so why shouldn't it always be true? 2. The threat of relativism. So instead of anything with supernatural authority, perhaps we are faced simply with rules of our own making. Then the thought arises that the rules may be made in different ways by different people at different times, in which case it seems to follow that there is no one truth in ethics. There are only the different truths of different communities. That is the idea of relativism. Relativism gets a very bad press for most moral philosophers, yet there is a very attractive side to relativism, which is its association with toleration of different ways of living. Nobody is comfortable now with a blanket colonial certainty that just our way of doing things is right, and that other people need forcing into those ways. It is good that the 19th century alliance between the missionary and the police has more or less vanished. A more pluralistic and relaxed appreciation of human diversity is often a welcome antidote to a very embarrassing imperialism. The classic statement occurs in Book 3 of Herodotus' Histories. The Greek historian from the 5th century BC is criticizing King Cambyses, son of Cyrus of Persia, who showed insufficient respect to Persian law. Everything goes to make me certain that Cambyses was completely mad, otherwise he would not have gone in for mocking religion and tradition. If one were to order all mankind to choose the best set of rules in the world, each group would, after due consideration, choose its own custom. Each group regards its own as being far better, far the best, so it is unlikely that anyone except a madman would laugh at such things. There is plenty of other evidence to support the idea that this opinion of one's own custom is universal, but here is one instance. During Darius's reign, he invited some Greeks who were present to a conference and asked them how much money it would take for them to be prepared to eat the corpses of their father. They replied that they would not do that for any amount of money. Next, Darius summoned some members of the Indian tribe known as the Kalatea, who eat their parents, and asked them in the presence of the Greeks, with an interpreter presence, so that they could understand what was being said, how much money it would take for them to be willing to cremate their father's corpses. They cried out in horror and told them they would do no such appalling thing. So these practices have been enshrined as customs, just as they are, and I think Pindar was right to have said in his poem that custom is king of all. There are two rather different elements here. One is that the law of customs is all that there is. The other is that the law of customs deserves such respect that only those who are raving mad will mock it. In our moral climate, many people find it easier to accept the first than the second. They suppose that if our standards are conduct, of conduct are just ours, then that strips them of any real authority. We might just as well do things differently, and if we come to do so, there is neither real gain nor real loss. What is just or right in the eyes of one people may not be so in the eyes of another, and neither side can claim real truth, unique truth for its particular rule. Arguing about ethics is argue about the place at the end of the rainbow, something which is one thing from one point of view and another from another. A different way of putting it would be that any particular set of standards is purely conventional, where the ideas of convention implies that there are other equally proper ways of doing things but that we just happen to have settled on one of them. As a philosopher says in Tom Stobart's play, Jumpers, certainly a tribe which believes it confers honor on its elders by eating them is going to be viewed 
askance by another which prefers to buy them a little bungalow somewhere. Why then does Herodotus show such scorn of Cambyses? Perhaps he was thinking like this. It is conventional to drive on either the right or the left, since each is an equally good solution to the problem of coordinating which side we drive. But it is necessary for there to be some rule. Hence, there is nothing at all to mock about whichever one we may we have hit upon. So just because of that, a later day, Cambyses, who mocked our slavish obedience to the one rule or the other, would be mad. However, there, there come into view norms or standards that are transcultural. In the United States and Europe, they drive on the right, and in Britain or Australia, on the left. But in each country, there has to be one rule, or chaos reigns and traffic grids halt. Funerary, funerary practices certainly vary, as Darius showed. But perhaps in every community, ever since we stopped dragging our knuckles, there have been needs and emotions that require satisfying by some ritual of passing. In Sophocles' tragedy Antigone, the heroine is torn between two unyielding demands. She must obey the king, who has forbidden burial to his dead opponents in battle, and she must properly bury her brother, who is among them. The second demand wins, and not only the ancient Greeks, but we today understand why. The play translates, Antigone's sense of what needs doing strikes a chord with everyone. If everyone needs the rule, that there should, then there should be some rule that itself represents a universal standard. It can then be suggested that the core of ethics is universal in just this way. Every society that is recognizably human will need some institutions of property, some distinction between mine and yours, some standards governing truth-telling, some conception of promise-giving, some restraint on violence and killing. It will need some devices for regulating sexual expression, some sense of what is appropriate by way of treating strangers, or women, or children, or the aged, or the handicapped. It will need some sense of how to distribute resources, and how to treat those who have none. In other words, across the spectrum, whole spectrum of life, it will need some sense of what is expected and what is out of line. For human beings, there is no living without standards of living. We can approach the idea of universality a different way, however. We can above that we can we said above that toleration is often a good, we do well to put many imperialistic certainties behind this. When in Rome do as the Romans do, but what if the Romans go and force some rather nasty things, as in fact they did? We do not have to lift the lid very far to find societies whose norms allow the systematic mistreatment of many groups. There are slave-owning societies and caste societies, societies that tolerate widow-burning or enforce female genital mutilation or systematically deny education and other rights to women. There are societies where there is no freedom of political expression or whose treatment of criminals cannot be thought of without a shudder or where distinctions of religion or language bring with them distinctions of legal and civil status. Here we have a clash. On the one hand, there is a, the relativist thought that if they do it that way, it's okay for them, and in, in any event, none of my business. On the other, there is the strong feeling most of us have that these things should just should not happen, and we should not stand idly by while they do. We have only perverted or failed solutions to the problems, of which standards to implement if the standards end up like that. Here it is natural to look to the language of justice and of rights. There are human rights, which these practices exploit and deny, but the denial of rights is everyone's concern. If young children are denied education, but exploited for labor, or if, as in North African countries, young girls are terrifyingly and painfully mutilated so that thereafter they cannot enjoy natural and pleasurable human sexuality, that is not okay, anywhere or anytime. 
if they do it, then we have to be against them in attitude and disapproval, even if not in practical political ways. Many people will want to take such a stand, but then they get confused and defeated by the relativistic thought that, even as we say this, it is still just us. The moral expression of the last two paragraphs embody good liberal Western standards. They are cemented in the documents such as the United States United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. But are they any more than just ours, just now? And if we cannot see them as more than that, then who are we to impose them on others? Multiculturalism seems to block well-meaning liberalism. We can, of course, insist on our standards or thump the table, but we want to think of ourselves as doing no more than thumping the table, or there will be a little voice saying that we are merely imposing our views or our wills on others. Table thumping displays our confidence, but it will not silence the relativistic imp on our shoulder. This is illustrated by a nice anecdote of a friend of mine. He was present at a high-powered ethics institute, which had put on a forum in which representatives of the great religions held a panel. First, the Buddhists talked of a way to calm, the mastery of desire, the path of enlightenment, and the panelists all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. Then the Hindu talked of the cycles of suffering and birth and rebirth, the teachings of Krishna and the ways to release, and they all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. And so on until the Catholic priest talked of the message of Jesus Christ, the promise of salvation, and the way to eternal life. And they all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. And he thumped the table and shouted, no, it's not a question of if it works for me. It's the true word of the living God, and if you don't believe it, then you're all damned to hell. And they all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. The joke here lies in the mismatch between what the priest intends, a claim to unique authority and truth, and what he has heard as offering, which is a particular avowal, satisfying to himself, but only to be tolerated and patronized like any other. The moral is that once a relativist frame of mind is really in place, no claims to truth, authority, certainty, or necessity will be audible except as one more saying like all the others. Of course, that person talks of certainty and truth, says the relativist. That's just his certainty and truth made absolute for him, which means no more than made into his fetish. Can we find our arguments to unseat the relativist frame of mind? Can we do more than thump the table? If we cannot, does that mean we have to stop thumping it? We return to these questions in section 3 of this book. Meanwhile, here are two thoughts to leave with. The first counteracts the idea that we are just imposing parochial Western standards when, in the name of universal human rights, we oppose oppression of people on the grounds of gender, caste, race, or religion. Partly, we can say that it is not usually not a question of imposing anything. It is a question of cooperating with the oppressed and supporting their emancipation. And it is usually not at all certain that the values we are upholding are so very alien to the others. This is one of the places where we are let down by thinking simplistically of hermetical, hermetical sealed cultures, them and us. After all, it is typically only the oppressors who are spokespersons for their culture or their way of doing it. It is not the slaves who value slavery, or the women who value the fact that they may not take employment, or the young girls who value disfigurement. It is the Brahmins, mullahs, priests, and elders who hold themselves to be spokesmen for their culture. What the rest think about it all too often goes unrecorded. Just as victors write the history, so it is those on top who write their justifications for the top being where it is. Those on the bottom don't get to say anything. The second thought is this. Relativism takes to its limit because of subjectivism. 
Not the view that each culture or society has its own truth, but that each individual has his or her own truth. And who is it is to say what is right? And who is to say which is right? So when at the beginning of section 1, I offered some more remarks about the Old and New Testaments, I can imagine someone struggling. Well, that's just your opinion. It is curious how popular this response is in moral discussions. For notice that it is a conversation stopper rather than a move in the intended conversation. It is not a reason for or against the proffered opinions, nor is it an invitation for the speaker's reason, nor any kind of persuasion that it is better to think something else. Anyone sincere is, of course, voicing their own opinion. That's a tautology. What else could they be doing? But the opinion is put forward in the public, into the public arena. It is something to be agreed with, or at any rate to be taken seriously or weighed for what it is by the audience. The speaker is saying, this is my opinion, and here are the reasons for it. And if you have reasons against it, we had better look at them. If opinion is to be rejected, the next move should be, no, you shouldn't think that, because. Sometimes, indeed, ethical conversations need stopping. We are getting nowhere, we agree to defer. But not always. Sometimes we shouldn't, and sometimes we cannot risk stopping. If my wife thinks guests ought to be able, allowed to smoke, and I think they ought not, we had better talk it through and do what we can to persuade the other or find a compromise. The alternatives may be force or divorce, which are a lot worse. And in our practice, if not in our reflections, we all know this. The freshman relativists who say, well, it's just your opinion, one moment, will demonstrate the most intense attachment to a particular opinion the next, when the issue is veganism, or preventing vivisection, or shaming sex pests, something they care about. It is my opinion, but it isn't just my opinion that there needs to be a rule about which side of the road to be driven upon. The question would be, what is wrong with someone who cannot see that? 3. The Threat of Egoism We are pretty selfish animals. Perhaps it is worse than that. Perhaps we are totally selfish animals. Perhaps concerns for others or concern for principle is a sham. Perhaps ethic needs unmasking. It's just the whistle on the engine, not the steam that actually moves it. How can we tell? Let us think about the method for a moment. On the face of it, there are two fairly good methods for finding what people actually care about. The first is to ask them, engage the sincerity of their responses and the plausibility of what they say. But people may deceive us, hoping to appear different from what they are. And they may deceive be deceived about themselves. Self-knowledge is an achievement, and perhaps a rare one, as the injunction on the famous oracle Delphi, Know Thyself, suggests. The second method is to look at what they choose and prefer. This, too, is fallible, for people may disguise their preferences. But in general, we can check on what people are like by seeing what they do. A man may present himself as a dutiful or nurturing father, and believe himself to be such. But if he never makes or takes an opportunity to be with his kids, we have our doubts. Suppose, though, he does make such opportunities and gladly takes them, and shows few or no regrets for what other's pleasures he may be missing by taking them. Then the thing is settled. He cares about, he cares about his children. In other cases, the diagnosis of smokescreen and hypocrisy beckons. Many governments use the rhetoric of moral duty, civilized missions, and the rest in order to sound good about putting peacekeepers into many of the countries to whom they regularly and copiously sell arms. It is not too difficult to see the mask of concern for what is. Does our nurturing father really care about his children? Fillability still threatens. Life in literature throws up cases where everyone, everything looks in line with one interpretation, yet the truth is different. Maybe this model... Model father is scared of his wife and knows that behavior that apparently indicates concern for his children is what she expects. Or maybe he is scared of public opinion. 
or be angling for a certain kind of reputation to further his commercial or political career. We can look at the settled patterns of his behavior as well as the same and still wonder whether things are as they seem. We can, but again, we have methods to follow. Suppose the man's wife disappears or his political career dies, but he goes on nurturing as before. This rules out the idea that it was fear of his wife or hope of office that motivated him. The natural interpretation that he cares for the children and enjoys being with them is the only one to survive. In the 19th and 20th century skepticism about these homely methods began to loom large, propelled partly by Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. People bowed before the idea of hidden and unconscious meanings, uncovered only by large-scale theory of human nature. To the theorist's eyes, things may be a long way from what they seem. So, we get the view that pacifism conceals aggression, or a desire to help masks a desire for power, or politeness is an expression of contempt, or contented celibacy expresses a raging desire to procreate. Perhaps everything comes down to sex, or status, or power, or death. A theorist's suspicion is often very good at one-word diagnosis, is also good at one-word dismissals of any rejection of its one-word solutions. The truth is repressed. It is hidden by false consciousness. In fact, the subject's resistance to any proffered reinterpretation can become an index of how true it is. The ideology becomes closed. A surprising theory can go along with the good insights. It can unify otherwise disparted and puzzling human phenomena. In his famous book, The Theory of Leisure Class, the sociologist Thorsten Veblen noticed a whole slew of strange facts along the following lines. First, itinerant workers who earn reasonable money tend to be showy, carrying flashy jewelry and large bankrolls, going in for high-stake poker games and the like. Looted peasants who could easily afford it never do so. Second, people who deplore the taste of others who are just a little beneath them in wealth and status, social status more than they deplore the taste of those a long way beneath them. Third, an aristocrat will prefer an able-bodied man as a butler or footman rather than a female or someone handicapped who could do the job equally well. Fourth, a well-kept lawn or park is a good thing around a nice house. Veblen unified these odd facts and many others with the theory that people have a need for wasteful display in order to manifest their status. Unlike the rooted countryman, the itinerant has to display the status on his person, hence the flashy appearance. We need to shout out that we are not just like those beneath us on the social ladder, for whom we might be mistaken, more than we need to shout out that we are not like those a long way beneath us, for whom we won't be mistaken for. The aristocrat can signal better signal plenty by keeping able-bodied servants in unproductive jobs than if he kept otherwise unemployable ones in such positions, hence footmen and butlers. Similarly, with gardens, lawns, and parks, which are beautiful just because they are ornamental and unproductive, Fablin thought the need to control aesthetic judgments as well. Fablin's insight is often summed up as the doctrine of conspicuous consumption, but the label is in fact a misnomer. The rooted peasant does not consume conspicuously. He does not have to, just because everyone he cares about knows to within an atom what he is worth. The view that consumption has a lot more to do with vanity or status than we might have supposed is immediately plausible and anticipated by many other thinkers, including Adam Smith, in spite of his rightly revered stature as a pioneering economist. Smith, who is at first a moral philosopher, took a very dim view of the desire for wealth and status. And once Veblen has stated it in a more precise form, we can test it against our own experience and find it if it works. And as the hallmarks of a good scientific theory, it is simple, 
It gives the unified explanation of otherwise diverse and discontented patterns of behavior. It's predictive. For instance, it would predict a pressure on the rooted peasant to put a suit for his journey to town where his worth is unknown. As a result, it is also falsifiable, for we might come across instances where the theory seems not to work, and it would need adjusting or abandoning in the light of them. Many such theories are not so well favored. Let us return to the dispiriting view that everyone, everybody always acts out of their own self-interest. It can be very unclear what this means, but taken as face value, it is obviously false. People neglect their own interests or sacrifice their own interests to other passions and concerns. This neglect or sacrifice need not be, even be high-minded. The moralist Joseph Butler gives the example of a man who runs upon certain ruin in order to avenge himself for an insult. Friends with his interests at heart might try to dissuade him, but fail. What this man may need to do is to act more out of self-interest, so that anticipating his ruin checks his desire for revenge. But his desire had been for the welfare of others, or for the preservation of the rainforest, or for the reduction of third world debt. He, the fact that he was neglecting or sacrificing his own interests might, be, might have seemed irrelevant. It is what the situation calls for in his eyes, and if we share his standards, perhaps in ours as well. If he spends his fortune or ruins his health on these objects, he may regard himself as only having done what he had to do. There is a trick to be guarded against at this point. Someone might read the last paragraph and complain that it is all very well if we think of someone else's self-interest only in terms of money or career or even health. Certainly people sacrifice these to other concerns. But then we just have agents whose real interest or full self-interest include these other things, the revenge or the rainforest or third world debt. They are just as self-interested as anyone else. The reason this is a trick is that it empties the view of all content. It kidnaps the word self-interest for whatever the agent is concerned about. But just for that reason, it loses any predictive or explanatory force. With this understanding of self-interest or self-interest or interest, we could never say, watch, the agent won't do this, but we'll do that because like all agents, she acts out of self-interest. All you can do is wait to see what the agent is in fact doing and then read back and boringly announce that this is where her interest lay. The move is not only boring, but a nuisance, since, as Butler puts it, this is not the language of mankind. It would have us saying that if I stand back in order for the woman and children to get in the lifeboat, then my self-interest lay in their being in the lifeboat rather than me. And this is just not the way we describe such an action. It appears to add a cynical reinterpretation of the agent, but in fact adds nothing but confusion. Perhaps surprisingly, we can see the general falsity of egoism by thinking of particular cases where it is indeed true. These are cases where an appearance of some larger concern does, in fact, disguise self-interest. Suppose two people gave to charity. Suppose it comes out that the charity is corrupt, and proceeds do not go to the starving poor, but to the directors. And suppose that on receiving this news, the first person is irritated and angry, not so much at the directors of the charity, but at the person bringing the news. Why bring this up? Just let me be. Whereas the second person is indignant at the directors themselves. Then we can reasonably suggest that the first person prized his own peace of mind or reputation for generosity more than he cared about the starving poor, whereas the second has a more genuine concern for what goes on in the world, not for whether he is comfortable or how he stands in the eyes of others. Fortunately, however, we are not all like the first person, or not all the time. We can be indignant at the directors just as we are indignant at many things that go on around us. We don't always shoot the messenger, and we can want to be told the truth because it is a truth that concerns us. We return to the emergence of cooperation later in section 12.
Boy, the threat from evolutionary theory. There is, is a sort of vague belief that some combination of evolutionary theory, biology, and neuroscience is support by general egoism. Indeed, most of the popular books on ethics in bookstores will fall into two, uh, one of two camps. There are those that provide chicken soup for the soul, soggy confections of consolation and uplift, or there are those that are written by one or another life scientist, a neuroscientist or biologist or animal behaviorist or evolutionary theorist, anxious to tell that science has shown that we are all one thing or another. Once more, we stand and ask, human beings are programmed. <clears throat> Often we are egoist, egotic. Egoist, altruism dangerous, ethics is only a fig leaf for selfish strategies. We are all conditioned, women are nurturing, men are rapists. We care above all for our genes. There is good news and bad news about the popularity of this genre. The good news is that we do have a relentless appetite for self-interpretation. There is a huge desire to find patterns of behavior, enabling us to understand ourselves and others better, and even perhaps to control this human flux. The bad news is the extent to which we will accord authority to anyone in a white coat, even when the science is all over. For as we are about to see, talking of the significance of science is not talking science. We should only venture into this literature if we are armed against three confusions. The first is this. It is one thing to explain how we come to be as we are. It is a different thing to say that we are different from what we think we are. Yet these are fatally easy to confuse together. Suppose, for instance, evolutionary theory tells us that mother love is an adaptation. This, mean that it, this means that it has been selected for because animals in which it exists reproduce and spread their genetic material more successfully than ones in which it does not. We could, if we like, imagine a gene for mother love. Then, claim would, then the claim would be that animals with this gene are and have been more successful than animals having only a variant, an allele, that does not code for mother love. The confusion would be to infer that, therefore, there is not really any such thing as mother love. Thus, we mask it. The confusion is to infer that underneath the mask, we are only concerned to spread genetic material more successfully. Not only does this not follow, but it actually contradicts the starting point. The starting point is mother love exists, and this is why. The conclusion is that mother love doesn't exist. In other words, an evolutionary story, plausible or not, about the genetic function of a trait such as mother love must not be confused with the psychological story of unmasking a mother's real concern. Perhaps nobody would make this mistake so baldly in this instance. But consider the idea of reciprocal altruism. Game theorists and biologists notice that animals frequently help each other when it would seem to be to their advantage not to do so. They ask the perfectly good question of how such behavior could have evolved when it looks set to lose out to a more selfish strategy. The answer is, or may be, that it is adaptive insofar as to trigger reciprocal helping behavior from the animal helped or from others witnessing the original event. In other words, we have a version of, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The explanation may be perfectly correct. It may provide the reasons why we ourselves have inherited altruistic tendencies. The confusion strikes again, however, when it is inferred that altruism doesn't really exist, or that we don't really care disinterestedly for one another. We only care to maximize our chance of getting a return on our investment of helping behavior. The mistake is just the same, inferring that the psychology is not what it seems just because of its functional explanation, but it seems more seductive here, probably because we fear that the conclusion is true more often in the case than in the case of motherhood. There are indeed cases of seemingly altruism disguising hope for future benefits. But there are also cases, of course cases, in which it is not like this, and shown to be such by the methods of the last section. The driver gives a penniless hitchhiker a lift, the dinner tip 
Dino tips the waiter he knows he will never see again. They each do it when there are no bystanders to watch the action. To guard against this confusion, contemplate sexual desire. It is an adaptive function, presumably, which is the propagation of the species. But it is completely off the wall to suppose that those in the grip of sexual desire really want to propagate the species. Most of the times, many of us emphatically do not. Otherwise, there would be no birth control, elderly sex, homosexuality, solitary sex, and other variations. And many people never do. Some moralists might wish it were otherwise, but it isn't. So this first confusion is to infer that our apparent concerns are not our real concerns, simply from the fact of an evolutionary explanation of them. The second confusion is to infer the impossibility that such and such a concern should exist, from the fact that we have no evolutionary explanation for it. This is unwarranted, for it may well be that there is no evolutionary explanation for all kinds of quirks, no explanation for why we enjoy a bird song, or like the taste of cinnamon, or have ticklish feet. These traits may just be side effects for others that are adaptive, or they may be descendants of traits that were once adaptive but are no longer so. Or they may be nothing to they may be nothing to do adaptations, but just due to chance. Or they may be adaptations, but only because they affect the eye of the beholder. Perhaps it is more pleasurable to be with a partner who has ticklish feet, and then a mechanism of sexual selection kicks in to boot the prevalence of the trait. That throws us back onto the question of why the pleasure and the preference exist, but perhaps it just does. Female peacocks go for the huge, beautiful, but apparently dysfunctional tails of a male, and female Irish elks went for the male practically immobilized by the biggest antlers. It is not easy to see why, and this becomes a problem. And this problem can be unfit. Can un. This problem can unfit explanations in terms of sexual selection for some purposes. For instance, if we find the human propensity for art or music puzzling because we cannot find a survival function for it, it doesn't immediately help to suggest that females prefer artistic and musical men, since we won't be able to find a survival function for that female preference either. What this means is that the explanation has to continue. It might continue by showing that females recognize that artistry and musicianship indicate other survival-enhancing traits, such as industry or cunning. And perhaps the peacock's gaudy tail may indicate freedom from disease, or the elk's antler indicate its strength. Or it might postulate a trembling hand, random jerk in evolutionary process, such as the inaccurate copying of a gene that just happened to entrench itself. The third confusion to guard against is to read psychology into nature, and in particular into the gene, and then read it back to the person whose gene it is. The most notorious example of this mistake is due to The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Here, the fact that genes, like viruses, replicate and have a different chance of replicating in different environments is presented metaphorically in terms of their being selfish, indulging this kind of ruthless competition to beat out other genes. It is then fatally easy to infer that the human animal must itself be selfish, since somehow this is the only appropriate psychology for the vehicle in which these little monsters are carried, or at least, if we are not selfish, it is because some strange miracle we can transcend and fight off the genetic pressure to do so. Dawkins first advanced, but has since repudiated this idea, yet it maintains a life of its own. Genes are not selfish any more than viruses are. They just have different chances of replicating themselves in different environments. Not only may they do better if the person carrying them is unselfish, altruistic, and principled, but it is easy to see why this should be so. As Darwin himself saw, a society of unselfish, altruistic, and principled persons is obviously set to do better than a group in which there are none of these traits, but only a war of all against all. 
Furthermore, the environment in which we human beings f begin flourish is largely a social environment. We succeed in the eyes of each other. Hence, a principle like that of sexual selection kicks in. If these are traits we admire in each other, they are likely to be successful not only for society as a whole, but also for any individual who has them. And we do admire them. Biological thinking has itself evolved beyond the ideological image of relentless competition in the jungle for survival. The present century has witnessed a decline of that ideology, and a substitute in terms of coordination and cooperation. At every level in the biosphere, from the interaction of cells up to and including the interactions of human symbiosis, the need to work and live together is far more significant in the race of life than competition. Again, we return to this in section 12. Five, the threat of determinism and futility. Another implication of the life sciences that determines ethics in many people's minds is the threat of determinism. The idea here is that, since it is all in the genes, the enterprise of ethics becomes hopeless. A basket of motivations that, in fact, more people may not be simple, but its contents in any particular person may be fixed. And then we just do as we are programmed to do. It is no use railing about or regretting it. We cannot kick against nature. This raises the whole thorny topic of free will. Here I want to look at one particular version of the problem. This takes a genetic makeup to imply the futility of ethics, meaning in part the futility of moral advice or education or experience. The threat is the paralyzing effect of realizing that we are what we are. Large mammals made in accordance with genetic instructions about which we cannot do nothing. Moral enterprise might indeed be hopeless because it tries to alter fixed nature. A prohibition on long hair may be enforceable, say, in the army or the police force. But a prohibition on growing hair at all is not, since we are indeed programmed to do it. An order forbidding hunger or thirst, or an army in order against dying of heat or cold, is futile since we cannot control such things. Such cases are less clear. Imagine a particular ascetic or monastic order whose rule not only enjoys chastity, but forbids sexual desire. On the face of it, the rule is futile. It cannot be obeyed because it is not up to us whether we feel sexual desire. At the same, t at the right times, the hormones boil and sexual desire bubbles up. Lust was an object of particular horror to early Christian moralists just because of its rebellious or involuntary nature. The chemical instructions are genetically encoded. There may be indeed be marginal technologies of control, yoga, or biofeedback, or drugs. But for most young people, most of the time, any injunction not to feel desire is laughable. But this is not to say that the embargo has no effect of all. It may well do so. It may be bring shame and embarrassment to those who find that they cannot conform to it. This may even be its concealing function, since it may thereby reinforce their subservience in the face of the implacable authority that commanded it. It can increase the power of churches or parents to keep their dependents in a state of guilt or a state of shame. But the rule is directly futile. It cannot be obeyed. So the real question is, are all rules sim similarly futile because of genetic determinism? The answer is no, because whatever our genetic makeup programs us to do, it leaves room for us to vary our behavior in response to what we hear or feel or touch or see. Otherwise, there would be little point in having these senses in the first place leaves room for us to vary our desires in accordance with what we learn. Discovering that this glass contains sulfuric acid, I lose the desire to drink it that I had when I thought it contained a chain. It leaves room for us to be influenced by information gathered from others. If we liked paradox, 
we might put this baldly by saying that genetics programs us to be flexible. But there is no paradox, really. Even an inanimate structure that is newly programmed can be made to be flexible. A chess program will be designed to give a different response depending on what move its opponent has just made. It is input responsive. Inflexible traits, growing hair, getting thirsty, are not input responsive because no matter what beliefs, desires, or attitudes we have, they go on just the same. But many of us have our own beliefs and desires and attitudes or not like that. They show endless plasticity. They vary with our surroundings, including the moral climate in which we find ourselves. It is an empirical matter how flexible we are in any particular respect. So genetic theory cannot forbid us from recognizing that a child may be disposed to become kind and loving in a kind and loving environment, vicious and aggressive in a vicious and aggressive one, intellectual and musical in an intellectual and musical one. And these dispositions may in turn be liable to be displaced if other factors influence things. We just have to look and see. Very possibly, what we may find is greater receptivity at some stages and relative inflexibility thereafter. It is, If this is so, far from sidelining the importance of moral environment, the exorcist through determinism will catapult it to the head of the agenda. That is where it should be if, once we have been weaned into an atmosphere of violence, aggression, and insensitivity, sentimentality, manipulation, and furtiveness, the everyday world of politics and entertainments, for example, we can never or almost never climb out. There are other ex- threats of futility than genetic determinism. There is the mood in which all human life is futile. I discuss this more in detail later. 6. The Threat of Unreasonable Demands I have argued for moderate optimism about human nature, at least blocking the pessimism and reinterpretations that we have met so far. But we have to be realistic and we should not demand too much from ourselves and each other. Then the threat arises that ethics does just that, and not in some overblown or over-demanded version, but at its very core. And then we get the reaction that it's all very well in principle, but in practice it just won't work. As Khan remarked, this is said in a lofty, disdainful tone, full of presumption of wanting to reform reason by experience. Kant finds it especially offensive, contrasting the dim mole eyes fixed on experience with the eyes belonging to a being that was made to stand erect and look at the heavens. However, the threat is real, and we can consider several versions of it. First, consider a morality centered on a simple and abstract set of rules. One of them may be, thou shalt not lie. Now, of course, when we think of central examples of this rule, we are apt to approve it. We should not abuse of other people's trust in us, and a deliberate, manipulative, barefaced lie may well do that. But there are other cases. There are white lies, socially expected and condoned. There are lies told to people who shouldn't be asking because it is none of their business and they have no right to the truth, or even because telling them the truth would bring catastrophe. It was one of the less palatable consequences of Kant's own rule-bound system that he didn't want these as valid excuses. He thought it was impermissible to lie to the mad axe man who asks you where your children are sleeping, although such a person would have no right to the truth and it would be catastrophic to inform him. There are also lies told in the service of a greater truth. There is no danger, maybe literally false, but said by the pilot, it puts the passenger in a more appropriate frame of mind, then the risk is quite small. There are lies we, perhaps in desperation, tell ourselves and get to believe before we tell others. It is not the harmful kind of answer, dear. It was central to Kant's moral scheme that the prohibition against lying remained simple and absolute, no exceptions. Suppose we agree with him. 
been a perfectly reasonable reaction for from anyone muddling along in society, or from the mother facing the accident, or from the pilot calming the passengers, would be to hell with that. If that's what morality demands, then I am opting out. Here's a second example where the stringency of ethics can lead to its rejection. Many theories of ethics highlight the impartial and universal nature of the moral point of view. It is a point of view that treats everyone equally. Every person has equal weight. Unless there are further factors, it is no better from the moral point of view that I should have some goods and you should not, than that you should have them and I should not. If the person without the goods is starving and the person with them has plenty, then morality demands a split. The money is needed more by the starving. The starvation of the poor requires redistribution from the rich. For many people, our duty to leave a decent physical environment for our successors requires giving up travel, heating, the use of plastic, or the eating of meat. If you manage the lifestyle that conforms to these real ideals, for it is easy to preach such things, but much harder to practice them. Indeed, the most blatant hypocrisies of our time include the comfortable academic arguing that justice is not served unless we have voluntary or involuntary redistribution programs, which carve the entire cake equally. The pamphlet first rule student littering glass and blurry with discarded plastic while preaching ecological absolutism, and the celebrities and princes flying around in private jets preaching about global warming. Even when at some level we accept that morality demands some of these things of us, a natural reaction is to shrug off its demands. It's not going to happen, it's impractical, we can ignore it. I do not think it is easy to find a suitable, stable attitude to the stringency of the prohibition of lying, or still more to the duty of concern for others, including for two generations. But I do think something has gone wrong if extreme demands are placed squarely in the center of ethics. The center of ethics must be occupied by things we can reasonably demand of each other. The absoluteness of the fanatic or the shirt, hair shirt of the saint lie on the outer shores. Not wanting to follow them there, or even not able to do so, we still have plenty of standards left to uphold. We should still want to respond to the reasonable demands of decency. We may not be able to solve all the world's problems, but we should do our best with the ones we can solve. So the right reaction is to look for moral principles that are not impractical and not limitless in their demands. Adhering to anything more stringent might be saintly and admirable, but it's not demanded of us. And the standard phrase is above and beyond the call of duty. A different example of a bid to escape the stringency of behaving well is the excuse of dirty hands. It's a bad business manufacturing arms or selling products cattle prods or handcuffs to various regimes. But say the manufacturer or the government, if we didn't do it, someone else will. Then they do have the jobs and reap the rewards. The arms and prods and handcuffs get made just the same, so why should we sacrifice our well-being for the benefit of our competitors? The moralist, standing erect and looking at the heavens, is simply out of touch with the need to make a living. Ethics is all very well, but perhaps we cannot afford to it. At least with his eyes on the earth, the dim mole earns his living. There's something grubby, not only to Kant, but I think to most of us, about the excuse that this argument offers us. We have some sense that we should keep our own hands clean, however much others will then dirty theirs. The excuse is not open to a person of strict honor or integrity, however convenient it may be in practice. In many areas, it is not over and above the call of duty to keep our own hands clean. Seven, the threat of false consciousness. In section three and four, we met theories that tried to discover hidden unconscious motivations, things that really move us, leaving ethical concerns exposed as mere whistles on the engine. We resisted their claims. 
but there is still room to argue that the social world of morality is tainted. Even if the motivations of its practitioners are sincere enough, this is because such people have somehow been sucked into a system, and that system may not be what it seems. Consider, for instance, a feminist criticism of a piece of male behavior. The male open, holds open a door for the woman, or offers to carry her parcel, or gives up a seat for her. A feminist might find this very offensive. She does not have to say that the man intends to demean the woman. His behavior, the feminist may maintain, is part of a system or institution or pattern of such offense, whose net effect is a signal that women are weaker or in need of male protection. And this is what she finds offensive. Of course, the man, in turn, might find her offensive, offensive, and upstart political correctness wars and gender wars. The feminists may go in for the kind of hidden psychological theories we have met, saying that men unconsciously intend to demean the woman. But that is unnecessary. She need not look at the level of individual psychology. All she has to say is that the man behaves as he does because of a system or socially institutionalized set of behaviors that are entrenched in the society, and that the upshot of the system is to demean women. This is enough for a critique to gain a hold. For another example of this critique, imagine a sincere cleric wringing his hand over his parishioner's sins. He is genuinely upset. He believes they are doing wrong and fears for their soul. His heart goes out to them. There is nothing so far wrong with him, but he may be part of a system with a rather more sinister function for all that. The church has taught him that taught him may be an organization dedicated to its own power, and as we already suggested, controlling people's sense of shame and guilt and sin is an instrument of power. It probably works best if nobody from the Pope down to the individual cleric realizes that, either consciously or unconsciously. So cleric might suggest now that ethics as an institution, I shall write this, ethics, is a system whose real function is other than it seems. A feminist might see it as an instrument of patriarchal oppression, a Marxist can see it as an instrument of class oppression, a Nietzschean may see it as a lie in which the feeble and timid console themselves for their inability to see vice as it should be seized. A modern French philosopher, such as Michel Foucault, can see it as a diffuse exercise of power and control. In any event, it stands unmasked. There may be good, a good deal of truth in some of these critiques. We can think of local elements of morality at particular places and times that certainly seem open to some such diagnoses. The passion with which the rich defend the free market can invite the raised eyebrow. A morality that gives us the right to their land, or the right to kill them for not having the same rituals as us, invites a similar diagnosis. The self-serving nature of the systems of religion or caste systems, patriarchal or market systems, can be almost entirely hidden from view to those who practice them. There's something a little off-color as well about some of the ways morality sometimes intrudes into people's lives. The judge, the priest, or the elders, a panel of the great and the good, may tell people what they must do, but themselves they do not usually have to live with the consequences. If the girl was not allowed the abortion, or the family not allowed to assist the suicide, they have to pick up the pieces and soldier on themselves, perhaps in prison. Those who told them how they had to behave can go on lunching at the club. An impartial moral law can bear very unevenly on different people, and it is this little wonder if people become disenchanted by an ethics largely maintained by those who do not have skin in the game, do not have to live it. Similarly, Antoli France speaks of a majestic equality of laws which forbid rich and poor alike to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. But although we may well accept examples of this kind of critique, I don't think it could 
possibly be generalized to embrace all of ethics. The reason is implicitly in what we already have stated. For human beings, there is no living without standards of living. This means that ethics is not ethics. It is not an institution or organization with sinister hidden purposes that might be better unmasked. It is not the creature of some concealed conspiracy by them, society, or the system, or the patriarchy. There are indeed institutions, such as the church or state, that may seek to control our standards, and their nature and function may need to be queried. But that will mean, at most, a different ethic. It does not, and cannot, introduce the ends of ethics. Central elements of our standards do indeed have a function, and it may be hidden from practitioners. An ordinary person may just be shocked at a broken promise, and that is the end of it. They do not have to reflect on the function of promise-keeping, but if they do reflect, then the position of the institution of promising may come into view. Its point will be something like this. By giving promises, we give each other confidence in what we are going to do, thus enabling joint enterprises to go forward. That is a point we can be proud of. Without something serving that point, flexible plans for coordinated attacks become impossible. Here, the description of the hidden function is not an unmasking or deconstruction. If anything, it gives us a boost to our respect for the norms surrounding promise-keeping. It shows that it is not just something about which we, the bourgeois, have a fetish. As I like to put it, it is not a debunking explanation, but a bunking one. Other central elements of morality don't even get this kind of explanation. They are less of a human invention than is the device of giving promises. Gratitude to those who have done us good, sympathy with those in pain or trouble, and dislike of those who delight in causing pain and trouble are natural to most of us and are good things. Almost any ethic will encourage them. Here there is nothing to unmask. These are just features of how most of us are and how all of us are at our best. They are not the result of a conspiracy any more than the enjoyment of food or the fear of death are. They just define how we live and how we want to live and want others to live. Nietzsche, indeed, tried to deconstruct the benevolent emotions, railing against them as weak or slavish or life-denying. Though the attempt is unconvincing and unpleasant, a kind of Hemingway machismo that regards decent human sympathy as unmanly. These have been seven threats to think about ethics. There are other obstacles to living ethical lives, which occupy us in part three.